Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following is part one in a two-part Q&A epilogue to our series, Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. Back in the fall at Van City, we did a teaching series and a set of practices um, around the idea of fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. And even though it was uh, quite comprehensive in scope, a very long series, there are uh, all manner of questions and ideas that you can't possibly broach within the confines of a 45-minute teaching or even uh, a set of spiritual disciplines that we would take home and do throughout the week in our uh, communities. So we asked at some point along the way if people would be willing to text in questions that were kind of left on the cutting room floor so that we could eventually get to them in a podcast, and that's what we're doing today. So uh, my name's Josh. I am um, one of the teacher and pa- teachers and pastors at Van City. Um, Cameron Silsby is also on the podcast. Hey, guys. And he is also one of the pastors and teachers at Van City Church. And then we asked our friend Bethany Allen to join us as well. Hi. Because... <laughs> Not only is uh, Bethany um, a seminary graduate and one of uh, the best pastors that I know, um, she's also kind of like an honorary pastor at Van City, <laughs> <laughs> the, the person who teaches at Van City the most that doesn't actually work there, right? Yeah, I like that. Yeah. I like yeah. that I'm an honorary pastor. An honorary pastor. I'm putting that down. What's the word for a professor who's only there for a little bit? Adjunct. Adjunct. She's an yeah. adjunct pastor yeah. at Van City. And we said, oh, how can we round this out with another intelligent and qualified voice? And uh, we said Bethany Allen. Oh, that's So nice. here she is. So I've got before me a set of questions that have been texted in along the way throughout the series and after the fact. The series was done back in the fall, so they've had a, a little bit of time to amass. And I've narrowed them down to some of the um, more pressing <laughs> ones. Some of them are a bit interesting and some of them are more specific and these two uh, have not really seen, or Bethany, you haven't seen the questions at all. No, at this all. Is, this is absolute news to Wait, you. Wait, Cameron's seen them? Yeah, I got to prepare. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I prepared to the degree that I just organized the document of questions. I honestly haven't given any thought to how to answer them yet. So that's important. The the you know the we're qualified to answer these questions in the sense that we have some thoughts, and beyond that, it's really just kind of our own opinions and ideas and uh, maybe some bit of of research and education along the way. Um, But we haven't gone off-site and prepared elaborate sermons to answer every single question. This is more of just a down-to-earth conversational, here's our two cents, um, take it or leave it. Is that fair to say, Beth? Especially, uh, do you feel like that takes (laughs) some of the weight (laughs) off your shoulders? Yeah, I'd like to just get that out there. (laughs) Especially, (laughs) just a reminder, I have not seen these, so. Okay, Bethany. Here's Bible trivia. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> great. Wouldn't is that a Bible drill? Yeah, just <laughs> can you please prove that you... <laughs> 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 All right, you guys ready to get into these things and see what they are? Yeah, let's do it. Can't wait. Okay. Um, the first question is uh, about this concept called uh, the flesh, which is something that we dealt with toward the end of the series, if you want to go back and listen to some of the teachings in the podcast. And someone asked, and I quote, How can you tell the difference between what is our flesh, and they qualified that as sort of our bent or brokenness, and what is other spiritual and autonomous beings at work? And does that distinction matter? So in other words, um, there's an aspect of uh, every person 
that is, we would we would argue, kind of bent out of shape, bent away from God and toward the things of God and toward things that are more self-destructive and destructive to others. And the New Testament authors call that, among other things, the flesh, the part of you that wants and desires what is wrong, bad for you, bad for creation, bad for the human family. But there's also in the scriptures a kind of race of autonomous Mostly non-physical beings, spiritual beings, the scriptures call them angels or demons, uh, sometimes gods with the lowercase g. And they have an autonomous active will in the world, in the cosmos, and in the created order. And they have, because they have autonomy, because they have um, agency and free will, they can interact with matter. They can influence um, humanity and the creation itself. And uh, so this person wonders, like, how, what, how can you tell what's your flesh, the, th- the part of you that's by brokenness of the fall, bent away from God? And how can you tell what is uh, spiritual evil, the influence of what we would call in common speak demons, evil spirits, that kind of thing? And really, does it matter? Is there a difference between the two? Um, and is is being able to decipher between the two important? Bethany immediately got out her phone and started uh, typing stuff. So I think she. No, I'm not. I don't know that I should go first. But d- you're already working on. It. I can see you crafting answers. I'm over just there. I trying like to not forget. It's <coughs> a lot of. There's a lot in that that question. Yeah. Yeah. To, it's to an important one. Yeah, and a really helpful one, I think. But I don't think it has a clear and linear answer in the ways that I think our humanity would probably want it to, especially with the formula-driven mentality. Because I think that there's, you know, I think part of the the greatest um, weapons or the greatest asset to you in understanding your flesh is just knowing what your bent is. Like, I think there's an element to doing the work of discovering and identifying um, what your natural inclination towards things are, which takes time and energy and space and the help of the Holy Spirit to help you understand just the ways that you're kind of wired or bent or whatever so that when there's a demonic influence or when there's bondage or when there's a temptation towards something it feels more like an a punctuation a punctuation mark as opposed to something deliberately like demonic you know like manifesting in front of your face and yeah. going like like whatever I think there's a I think it's more of an emphasis or um, something being accentuated um, where you start to go like, oh, that's outside of my normal bent. There's a weight here. There's a different influence here. There's a different level of gravity here in my flesh that could potentially be demonic. But I don't think there's a clear answer of like, yeah, this is the definitive moment when you know it's demonic and when you know it's flesh. And I think where you have to lean spiritually is a, is towards that. That's why the call is to holiness because it's it's only in that space where you have the clear distinction of both and you're shying away from both. Both need to be ordered under the alignment of Jesus, both of those things need to submit and will submit to the to the king. But that's why the scriptures are so clear, like lean this way. Paul is so adamant, you know, put these things to death so that you, yeah. know, you can live freely. But if you're if you're trying to it's almost like and I'm, I'm not saying that's what this question is, but it's almost like when people ask, like, how far is too far? Or sure. How close am I th- to the line? It's like, well, there's wisdom and just I mean, there's validity to that question, but your bent and the influence of darkness usually go can go hand in hand and live in the same space and it can be deceptive on both ends there's no definitive way to 
to always parse that out. So, Yeah, I think that the Im really important and helpful thing that you're touching on is the overlap between the mm -hmm. two in that, um, honestly, there, at least in my own, uh, if I'm, I think, understanding my own story accurately, they are often one and the same in the sense that I think that there has been what I would describe as demonic influence over my flesh or into my flesh in the sense that the easiest way to exploit an enemy is to use their weaknesses yeah. against them. Uh, and I think that that is one of the primary strategies of the enemy, at least in my own experiential evidence, in that I are there ever uh, circumstances and situations in which someone feels as though they're being pressed in a unique direction that's completely outside of their personality. Sure, I've, I've heard stories like that, and it seems like it's an obvious case of like, wow, this seems like it's an outside influence that's evil. Mm -hmm. um, and not even in the sense like you're saying that it's like it looks like the exorcist, more like I've never had these desires or this sense, and I recognize them as destructive, and yet they feel as though they're like oppressively wearing me down. But more often than not, it's like this has always been a part of my brokenness and there's a there's a weight on it in this season of my life or there's a weight on it because of these outside factors. And the you know, the what we would often describe as, you know, um, chaos or circumstance, the enemy will use as well, meaning that if you're stressed or worn down or overworked or burnout and then the flesh part of you that tends toward pessimism or tends toward shortness or rudeness or lust, whatever it is that your propensity for sin, the enemy will come in and put pressure on those exploiting circumstances that the enemy didn't necessarily orchestrate directly using your flesh that isn't necessarily, again, um, you know, uh, orchestrated by the enemy itself. But there's an overlap there. there. Both of them are working in concert to bring you down, yeah. unfortunately. And both, uh, both cases are are accurate and I think that that's the other piece that Bethany mentioned that's really helpful in that even though there is an overlap um, you know the Venn diagram it moves closer and closer together p or circumstance story by story um, knowing the difference can be important even though the answer isn't as clear as we would like it to be in that how you apply um, your your spiritual formation and the, the direction you move in your spiritual formation will be shaped by, uh, you know, whether you think this is influence from the enemy or whether you think that this is part of your natural bent and brokenness and whether or not that there's an overlap. I can think of a, a story with me personally where I was going through <coughs> a particular dark period and thinking that, like, I recognized all the things as, as indicative of my personality, my own brokenness, but it felt like there was a particular heaviness there. And I went to a trusted friend and said, hey, I think there might be, you know, like um, demonic uh, oppression or influence that's unique to my own story. And he said, oh, OK, let's sit down and pray together and think through this. And in the end, after like a, a lot of prayer and um, and discussion and and then ultimately breakthrough, I think that there was, uh, you know, I would already have a, a super high view of uh, the autonomy of human and spiritual agency. So I think that those things are always at least suspect, if not always involved to some degree. But in the end, I, I walked away thinking like that it was uh, uh, more 
flesh than it was direct demonic oppression. And even though it felt like it was a particular weightiness, I think that it was kind of a whirlwind of circumstance and my own feelings and my own bent. Um, and I do think that it was provoked or aggravated by the enemy, but it wasn't. I went into it thinking like, man, it just seems like out of nowhere, you know, like this winged thing descended on me and like started poking at me. And in the end, I think it was more like a, a bit of tweaking. But, you know, I, I obviously don't have a window into a visible spiritual realm that tells me that I'm going off of conjecture that that feels, uh, you know, evidenced by the, the experience and the prayer and the breakthrough. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Uh, I think you guys nailed it on on the head. I think. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, uh, nailed I it. I approve. Uh, <laughs> you can hear what they have to say and accept it. Uh, I I would say that uh, I wonder if the person asking this question has the thought about how um, this kind of sort of spiritual warfare and charging of sin or temptation or brokenness. Um, affects responsibility for the actions and i think scripture is pretty clear that like when we sin the responsibility is ours we can't blame it on like a demonic temptation or 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 a demonic uh, empowering of our brokenness and and bentness uh and i think that's an important distinction to make and then i would also ask you guys i had this question come to mind maybe this helps make it a little bit more concrete and less hypothetical in people's minds but do, do you think uh, this distinction between just brokenness and like a charge, a charging like demonically of brokenness, um, is it important in the sense that it can actually unlock a sort of um, pathway to like holiness and healing in the sense of say somebody has like a bent towards anger and they realize like they, they've been fighting against it, they've been fighting against it, you know, they're, they're doing everything that they, they think they should be doing. Do you think it's a circumstance where it's like, realizing that there's a, like a demonic empowering of this sin will actually be kind of the key to unlocking like the next step in the progression as followers of Jesus. Do you think that distinction is that important or do you think it's uh, it's not so much? I don't know that I would uh, argue that it's necessary to level up, so to speak. Uh, you know, the that the distinction will inhibit someone from the next major cornerstone of growth as a disciple of Jesus. But I do think that that knowledge or lack thereof can inhibit some level of breakthrough, especially over types of habitual or cyclical types of sins. I've heard lots of stories about folks who um, were in the more common cycles of sin, porn addiction or substance abuse or uh, thought destructive thought patterns that um, they had treated, so to speak, with um, wise and discerning spiritual disciplines, thoughtful prayer, and, uh, and candid conversation with trusted people, but didn't experience what they would describe as um, significant breakthrough until um, the area of demonic oppression was addressed and dealt with in prayer and deliverance, that kind of thing. Or do you agree or disagree with that, Beth? She's giving me yeah. a, a look that I can't, dis I can't <laughs> tell if it's approving <laughs> or disapproving. I'm taking it all in. Yeah, I think that that's really, um, it's a helpful distinction. I also feel like just in the tension of spiritual formation and the journey, it is important not to give too much weight or too much emphasis 
that's like the one disclaimer I would say to the spiritual realm, to the demonic, to like, well, if only I could have this yeah. specific breakthrough, then that would be, you know, it's giving power to the darkness as opposed to giving power to the light and saying like, my breakthrough actually comes not by the severing of this demonic power or influence in my life, but by the authority that Jesus comes yep. and brings. And so I think there's just a helpful the focus, the emphasis there isn't, shouldn't be your eyes, shouldn't be shifted on what is the demonic doing? How are they influencing my, my flesh? How are they? It should be, how's God bringing liberation to it? How am I leaning into the light? How am I closing off any spaces or doors, if you will, that are, that yeah. are open ga- gateways for the enemy to come and have influence? Because when you're feeling your flesh accentuated, the, the discipline is to to shut off anything that would give influence to its or to feed its power yeah. mm-hmm. and to to feed your spirit. It's that feeding the spirit over the flesh. And um, so I think the emphasis would be there, especially when we're thinking through breakthrough and all of that, not to give power credit to the enemy and what they're even the identification of the enemy. That's still giving them some kind of weight and influence and and leaning more towards um, what Jesus is doing and how he's bringing freedom. Yeah, I think that's key, especially if one can scarcely overstate both the goodness and the ingenuity of Jesus in overcoming spiritual strongholds. So um, I would hate to create a, you know, a a picture of someone, uh, Jesus is standing by idle thinking like, well, if only you were saying the right incantation, we could have breakthrough. But um, he will work people in work with people in their limited awareness of s- the spiritual realm and and uh, use all the means at his disposal f- for breakthrough. Yeah. Not just the right types of prayers. But I do think that, um, you know, that w- the m- the more that we can be thoughtful and, you know, exploring our own spirituality and yeah. uh, what's going on is, is helpful. I think there's also just as a side note an irony when you're in this space of discerning flesh and spirit where your flesh will actually be fighting for the pride of of being the liberator. Like there is still a tension in you to want to be the one that can identify the darkness <laughs> and take credit for it. And so there's a, it's ironic because you're it's the thing you want to wage against and when at least I mean I just have seen it I think I'm sure I've experienced it where there's this still part of me that's like look what I found like and in that, that's my flesh going like, look at me, I'm mm-hmm. <laughs> special or I don't know, whatever. God, I want to be like God. Um, when, again, that's taking, that's actually giving more influence and giving more leverage yeah. to the enemy. So that's just an aside. But At the end of the day, it's, it's interesting because even though we've put uh, w- months into this series and why thoughtful exploration of these ideas is so important, um, but you reach a point in the conversation where you're like, what What does it matter? At the end of the day, destroy sin. You know, yeah. at the end of the day, destroy evil, fight yeah. evil, push evil back. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't ultimately matter the source in <laughs> uh, what matters is that sin be put to death, that, you know, you crucify yeah. the things of the devil. And in that sense, like whether it's your flesh or whether it's, you know, d- the devil himself, it's all, it belongs to the same place. Yeah and can be banished thusly. You guys ready for another question? Yeah, let's do so it. So far, we're doing great on can't nice, succinct answers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember those instructions, though. So I'm just Oh, there's no, no. I'm no. going lengthy and long. Go lengthy. Just in-depth, emotional. I actually had you in mind uh, when I read this question, Bethany Allen. 
why do you think, someone asks, there are so few cases of demonic uh, possession in modern America, or, or maybe we would reword it to say so few cases of demonic manifestation or m- manifestations of demonic oppression in the modern Western world as opposed to the first century, first century ancient Near East, that kind of, that kind yeah. of thing. And I, I know from your experience that you would immediately have some things to say. Yeah, I mean, initially, I think my first thoughts are we're just we aren't trained to see it the way that they were trained to see it. I think the demonic influence is is just as, if not more (laughs) explicit than it was um, in Jesus's time or in history past. Honestly, I was even thinking in other countries. And I think that's largely because we've learned to mask it as an American culture. And we've also not we've in the church not. We've not put the weight or even emphasis in spaces of understanding it and studying it, and not for the purpose, again, of giving it influence, but for the purpose of combating it with wisdom. So I think we have people who come into the gatherings all the time um, who are demonically oppressed, like not even oppressed, but um, that they're manifesting. They will manifest in a, a particular space. We just aren't trained to actually identify it and then know what to do with it. And I think a lot of that has been just even our fear around it has kept us from actually being willing to engage it. I was reading, um, ironically, this morning in Mark 3, where Jesus talks about, you know, the disciples having the authority to cast out the demonic. And even as the, the demonic spirits were first coming to Jesus, you know, through people in his ministry, they were just like, don't it, it was this consistent like we know who you are don't harm us or whatever it was they were they were revealing themselves because of the I, I don't know why the potency of who Jesus was the reality of who he was and I think because there's been discrepancy in I think us holding up Jesus the way we should I think we've also let that influence the church and our ability to see darkness so I think I keep repeating myself but there's a reality I think we're just not trained to see it and or not willing to see yeah. it because I think he is willing to see it for the purpose of freeing the individual of loving that person enough to actually enter in and, and believing that they actually that he had the authority to do it and the disciples the same believing we have the authority not to be overcome by the darkness but to overcome it by the way of the spirit and I think we just as a church do not we don't teach that very well we don't equip people in that very well and we just we haven't allowed it to be part of the fabric of of our DNA, of our culture as the church. And so I think we just, it's happening all the time. Walk down the streets of Portland or Vancouver and you're going to encounter people who are demonically oppressed. It's just what you're willing or not willing to do with it, what you're willing to see or not willing to see, what you're willing to name as addiction as opposed to oppression. There's just that ability to to actually see it and engage it. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, that's the thing we have to ask ourselves as a church is, are you actually willing? Because you can pose, we can pose questions like this, but I think the, the discipleship or the apprenticeship question is, well, are you willing to take on that? If God said, go to a group of people who are demonically oppressed and go in faith and bless them and call them to freedom, <laughs> how many of us would be like, great, can't wait. Yeah, I've got a sandwich with me, I'm ready to go. So... I think it's more a question of our formation and our belief in what we actually carry within us as opposed to what, you know, what was back then or what is. And even, you know, I think when you think foreign countries and you think about what you'll see manifested if you go on a mission trip or whatever, more easily, it feels more easily accessible. It's just they have less distractions. They have less things floating around to keep you, you know, preoccupied so you don't see what's going on. I think that's one of the schemes of the enemy, just as an aside. I think that's what he's done in America is just continues to turn up the volume and make things 
more flashy and more confusing and more unclear. So we're just not even sure what we're entering into. Yeah, I think that one of those distraction pieces is the elevated dichotomy, or I would even s call it a unnecessary distinction between what we would call as non-demonic ailments and demonic oppression. When you read the New Testament, especially the, uh, the gospel narratives, there is a consistent um, both and when it comes to issues of what we would dismiss as nothing more than health issues, things that are clearly bouts of epilepsy um, or uh, paralysis even, that in the New Testament, they simply don't make the same distinctions. Jesus uh, under seems to understand his healing ministry, as in, you know, like, don't be sick anymore, and his ministry of exorcism as one and the same. Mm -hmm. So you often get stories where Jesus will be, someone who's oppressed by a demon or possessed by a demon will be brought to Jesus, and he'll heal a specific ailment, and then the, the author of the gospel will say, and the demon was cast out and it's and it's because they understand those things as all intertwined and somehow in the you know the blah 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 post-enlightenment western world understanding of like well now we can understand these things medically and there's you know there's been a whole like it this this little boy was probably just epileptic he wasn't oppressed by a demon but primitive people in the ancient near east thought of that as like it must be an evil spirit um, but I think that that's actually uh, a tad insulting to the authors as if to say they didn't have any idea that people could just be sick. It's very clear that they had a uh, maybe not a robust medical understanding in the sense of modern Western medicine, but they knew that people had seizures. They knew that people got sick or that they were born blind, those, those kinds of things. And they also had a robust understanding of, of s a spiritual dimension to those same things. Um, so when we think of like demonic possession, as this person put it in their question, our minds go immediately to kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, scenes from The Exorcist or someone who's spitting, you know, green pea soup and uh, saying all kinds of obscene things, acting extremely uncharacteristic or, you know, like, and, but even those things like, uh, you know, the, that were introduced to like uh, American popular culture zeitgeist in, I believe, 71 is when William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist was published, were based on accounts that had been collected over time of people who were manifesting demonic oppression and would speak in different languages or say things that were obscene that they wouldn't say otherwise. And so he wove these things into their narrative. They got introduced by this movie. And so now we have like a, a popular culture who thinks of demonic possession always means somebody's head spins around and they shout out blasphemous things. And, um, but in the in the New Testament, you get some of that stuff. You get people who are crazy strong or say insane things or cut themselves, you know, that the all stuff that sounds like it's in the Hollywood version of, of demonic possession. And then you also get someone who has seizures, and the seizures want to throw them in a fire to kill them. And the people understand that they have seizures, but they also understand that there's a demonic element to that. And Jesus treats both in kind. Sometimes he just heals people and demon comes out and sometimes he casts out a demon and the physical ailment vanishes as well. So I think that the question of like, oh, is it one or is it other is, is disastrously misleading 
because at least in uh, in our theology, there is a demonic element to even the idea of sickness itself. Does that mean that every single sickness is personally energized by a demon? Well, no, I, I wouldn't argue that. But I do think the fact that the world is broken to the degree that we get sick is an outworking of demonic influence in the in the physical realm and so even that kind of understanding is helpful in approaching you know what we would think of as demonic oppression possession things like that in that we're not going into things like you know a, a physical ailment and thinking like we have to figure out whether or not a demon did this or whether this person just got sick but you treat both the same way that you would you know you're, what you're looking for is healing deliverance the intervention of jesus and the holy spirit and you approach those things with all manner of thing, uh, you know, available tools at your disposal. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Peter touches on this when he's talking to uh, this dude, Cornelius. He says in Acts chapter 10, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. There's an overlap there that uh, I think we can tend to miss. And I think this particularly... um, can be sensitive for a, a person's background. So if you're a hyper Pentecostal, you might you might have been a part of a church that uh, tended to focus on the demonic side. And if somebody had depression, it must have been demonically charged. So what they needed was an exorcism. Um, or on the flip side of that, if you were in a cessationist church or a functionally cessationist church, um, you have absolutely no tools in order to um, respond to something like what seems to be legitimate. Demonic oppression or demonization. So uh, I think, like a, a question like that, it, you have to realize. I think what we've talked about, like your your own background, culturally, theologically, and and how that shapes how you view people in in certain situations, and, and taking that into account, and then seeing how the scriptures talk about it, and allowing the scriptures to to actually shape how you view uh, your world and and the, and the people around you. Yeah, I think that's the key. I think that you know what. Our hope in this whole series and even answering these questions has not been that we become an, uh, an obsessive people who are constantly looking for the devil behind every bush. In fact, we talked at length about avoiding that posture in the series. But what we are hoping to build out is a healthy paradigm for the fact that there's more to what's going on in the brokenness of the world than what you can see or put under a microscope and that doesn't negate what you can see or put under a microscope by any means but we think that it behooves the disciple of Jesus to have the same paradigms that Jesus himself had and he clearly had a very high view and a high awareness of the spiritual realm which brings us to this next question which I think is uh, kind of a funny one which is uh, these are all anonymous by the way so I don't know who I don't know who asked this before you think I'm judging you <laughs> could drugs Are you excited? Could drugs, especially psychedelic drugs, and only when used responsibly, be a positive force to our spiritual well-being given numerous people reporting this to be the case? Yeah. uh, You know, I was actually, at first when I read this question, you know, you chuckle at it and you say, yeah, that's that's kind of a, a silly question that seems to be for the era of the 70s or something like that. Uh, but it's really interesting. Uh, NPR has done a couple stories about how they're starting to uh, experiment in a clinical setting 
treating PTSD with psychedelic drugs. NPR just did a a story on how they're also doing a similar thing with people with terminal illness to help them cope with it and and process through that. And so I think if we dismiss this kind of out of hand as like too silly or too out there, um, we're kind of doing a disservice with without like wrestling through like a, a question like this because our culture is asking these questions as well, even if we ourselves or most of us aren't or are completely unaware of it. Um, so that's what I have to say. What do you guys think? <laughs> now that Cam has yeah. defended the drug enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let me tear all that down. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I just think, I think there's a, I think the question though, you know, obviously in line with cultures, um, where we're at culturally at some level, I think it. I think any, any, and we've had, I've had this conversation on different levels with weed and other things. And sure, there's, there's things to nuance, I, I guess, out in the conversation. But especially when we're talking about an encounter with God, I feel like it's idolatry <laughs> to use something else. You're, you're saying, can I get the substitute of something to help evoke a greater sensation with God and not believing that God himself is able to show up in a powerful and profound way enough to actually influence you because you are susceptible and in by participating in the drug realm, doing any kinds of drugs, you are opening up yourself to things you're fully unaware of. You're not fully present. You're not fully sober in that you're able to really engage with what's going on. So you don't know light or dark what you're participating in and aligning with. So I feel like there's a level of this that's like, well, I'll, it's a it's a man-made, in my opinion, and forgive me if this is offensive, sort of. Actually, I don't know. Um, take responsibility. Yeah, just, just I'm sorry. It. I just don't agree at all that you need. I think it's with like anything where we would say, well, we need some heightened emotional synthesized worship set in order to encounter the presence of God, and it's not true. And if we look all throughout Scripture and we see God revealing himself and really glorious powerful transformative ways which is what we all long for in our design for this deep space of intimacy and communion and union and and the glory that comes with it um he doesn't ever need to use even the elements of creation to do that his very presence can evoke all those realities so i would say yeah i think it's a like in in line with culture it's a fair question to ask but i feel like if you're adhering to the scriptures if you're adhering to a biblical narrative for your life then you, when it comes to anything, you shouldn't have to use a crutch of sorts to get to a certain place with God. God is able enough to meet with you in a way that's meaningful and transcendent and all these other realities. We don't even need, we don't need these tools that honestly men have created. These are man-made things. These are not God-made things. And I don't, care about the weed argument we can talk about that another day but is you know, weed a psychedelic thing no uh, but it's it's grown on the ground yeah. so they're always like well god made it yeah. so it's you like know and so whatever sure man. trippy bro <laughs> so and i don't whatever that's a whole other conversation but when it comes to psychedelics you're often dealing with chemicals and different things that are not that that god doesn't need to encounter you so i just I, while i can appreciate and respect the question i feel like we got to give god a lot more credit than we're giving him yeah, and I yeah. would add to that, you know, it makes me think of, um, I remember reading years ago uh, a musician that I appreciate that is known for kind of uh, sh- very sh- strange and ex- experimental approaches to music and art, who was constantly asked, like, what kind of drugs do you use? Like, uh, wha- are you a drug enthusiast? Do you s- you Are you, you know, a proponent of the idea of using drugs to unlock creative potential? And I remember this musician being offended and being like, 
you're, you're essentially saying that like I have I lack the ability to reach this level of strange creative artistry unless I'm you know like lifted up by some kind of chemical experience and how offensive that is and, and they were arguing like well sure you could point to any number of people who've, who've made things while they're high but like you're, what you're saying to me is like you're a phone you're a fraud because you need dr like surely you drugs help you get there and uh and i remember thinking freaking a like uh because it seems to me th that uh, in both cases where whether you're talking about the spiritual realm and what you're capable of as a human i mean the easiest argument is that like it, did anyone have a greater awareness and um of the spiritual realm and how to interact with it appropriately than Jesus. And we have zero evidence that mm -hmm. he was on LSD <laughs> or anything like that. And if Jesus is our example and the authors of the scripture, then it seems perfectly adequate. Did anyone have a greater awareness and experience of the father than Jesus? And it doesn't seem like he dropped acid to be able to figure that out. Again, I'm making probably some erroneous assumptions about drugs because I don't know about the drugs, which is why I had to ask if weed was a, people hallucinate on weed i thought they just got no. tired and if no, movies are telling not. me the truth they just get tired and then eat food or s something like that yeah i yeah essentially yeah, it's a downer a downer right yeah. so it yeah you know it's like i <laughs> it's hard for, honestly I, you could dismiss me from the conversation i've been a you know a uh, a big detractor of drugs and even like um drunkenness and things like that but it did make me think that when i was reading the question it did make me think of uh being at a, a pub with some friends once and i i you know i've never drank these other friends of mine were having a beer responsibly and um they were kind of poking fun at me for not drinking and one of them said like i'm actually kind of these are all people who follow jesus and one of them off the cuff i'm sure they didn't mean anything by it said i'm actually curious what i would be like as a drunk person i've never been drunk i wonder what that would be like and this other person said, I, I would, I'm not even curious. I don't even, I don't even want to do that. And it's like, you're not even remotely curious what it would like to be, you know, like out of control of your senses to some degree and your behavior. And <laughs> this other fellow said, no, because I believe in demons. And he wasn't trying to hyper spiritualize the conversation, but what he meant was that any time that you, um, give over control of your, you know, your mental and spiritual prowess, it can act as, frankly, a, an avenue for the enemy to come in here and let me exploit you and the things that you would and would not do otherwise. Um, and and I think that that even though in the moment I think we laughed and said like, "Wow, he got you know he he went there or so or something," was an astute argument against you know like giving up control of your facilities to some kind of the uh, the argument in the question seems to be that you know there's some kind of argument to be made for uh, uh, a greater awareness of the spiritual realm under the influence of some kind of drug and I think that once again you can just just you can kind of with sensitivity dismiss that argument just based on the fact that Jesus wasn't high had the best awareness of the spiritual realm yeah yeah and you know the scriptures talk a lot especially like in in, a, in the wisdom literature about uh, a, a mind-altering substance even like alcohol, drinking too much, and how it leads not to wisdom but to foolishness. And, and I think, uh, you, you know, dabbling in things like psychedelics, which, um, you know, are, are fairly uncontrollable. Um, once you start on them, you're going to go. They're going to take you to wherever they take you. 
I, I just I don't see wisdom in that. I, I think that's folly. And uh, I mean, I wonder if this person, I, I don't know their past, obviously it's anonymous, but if they've tried it before and they've had experiences where they would try to defend themselves, like, oh, this is, this was a positive thing for me. Um, you know, I, I would definitely push back on that and especially like really hear what Bethany has to say that if you're looking for something to like bridge the gap between you and God, that's, that, I mean, that's Jesus. That's his spirit that, that's in us. That's supposed to be doing that. And um, you, you're looking for other ways to, to approach God. And that's just not. So what you're saying yeah. is get high on God. Hey, oh, <laughs> yeah. nothing. I can't even yeah. get a chuckle. <laughs> wow. So patronizing. <laughs> I thought it was funny. <laughs> All right. You guys ready for more more of this? You don't ready for more. You ready for more? Mm-hmm. Feeling all right? Everyone's still feeling yeah. sharp. Yeah, the drug question didn't bring us down. I would add to that but as I'm a bent. as a coda to the drug conversation that you know you get that interesting uh, imaginary conversation that Paul has with himself in First Corinthians where he's quoting them saying I can do anything I want and then he's replying to them was like well yeah but doing everything you want doesn't really help you. And he, at, at the, I believe at the conclusion of that imaginary conversation, says, you know, uh, I, I can do whatever I want or um, I have the right to do anything you say, but I will not be mastered by anything. And I think that the, it, you know, uh, even though the conversation around addiction and the nature of addiction is a complicated one, I, s- I certainly think that even Paul's argument to not be mastered by anything is enough to kind of... Um, tie up the whole should we <laughs> take LSD or, or whatever this person wants to do. I wish I knew of more hallucinogenic substances to reference. What about like uh, the spray cans and stuff? Mm. Do people hallucinate on those? I don't know if you hallucinate. Mushrooms are. Mushrooms? mushrooms. Yeah. yeah. Just give me some delicious edible mushrooms. Am I right? That I mean that don't cause yeah. me to have drug experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like on a pizza. Yeah. I like mushrooms on a pizza. Me too. Okay, <laughs> okay, we can all agree on that. Um, what role does the worship of Jesus play in spiritual warfare? And if I had to narrow this question down, I would say, like, what role does worship in the context of, like, corporate singing songs? Um, and I think this is actually a really good question because it's something that we touched on and alluded to several times in the teaching series and that we've even brought up um, in the context of our gatherings when we get together and worship. And it's a question that um, has helped me understand why a physical expressiveness can be important or beneficial mm-hmm. to worship as well. Uh, I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine who um, uh, writes and records and performs worship music. And I was asking, like, could you make an argument for physical expressiveness in worship Um, Even what we would think of as traditional or dare I say like cliche, putting your hands up in the air, closing your eyes, prayer gestures and postures and things like that. Um, Could you make an argument for those things outside of them simply being learned by the the culture around you? Like if you grew up in a context where people, when they're really into worship, put their hands up in the air, you learn to do that. You repeat it. Even my small children will come into the worship gathering. They see everyone put their hands in the air. They do the same thing. And we all smile. Oh, my gosh. So cute. So sweet they don't really fully understand why that gesture would be appropriate, um, but they do it anyway. And I'm not saying that invalidates it whatsoever, but this friend of mine argued that there is, 
even though you could make other arguments for like, well, why danced to music? It's a, a way of responding to worship with your body, not just your mind sitting there thinking good thoughts. Like if music is to the degree that it invites and necessitates bodily interaction, not just, you know, sitting there and thinking things, well, couldn't, shouldn't worship be, you know, uh, paramount on that list of it invites a full a full reaction to your personhood but they also had this interesting argument that they said that like um, like expressiveness in the body in in protest or in uh, in protest music the protest music tradition a fist in the air or um, you know stomping feet things like that uh, there's an element of spiritual warfare in the expressiveness of the body in in worship um, that's not only and this this sounds strange and supernatural but is not only for your benefit but that is visible mm -hmm. to the invisible kingdom that they see uh, in a certain sense a group of people together in a room with hands in the air with bodies uh, responding to um, the powerful statement that Jesus is king and in that that he's king over you know the and and victor ultimately victorious over the the dominion of evil mm -hmm. agreed I and, think, and <laughs> yeah I think there's a couple different aspects to think of when you think of worship as warfare or whatever however people are saying it these days you know I think the I do think it's important we don't we don't measure it that way, at least in American culture, very often. We don't measure our interaction with the the heavenly realm or the invisible realm. But I think like what you're saying, Josh, about your body actually being a presentation, not only to the principalities and powers of the kingdom of light and darkness, but also to each other, to the body of Christ. That's why we're told not to forsake the gathering together of the believers, because there's something that happens there that um, is essential in the life of the believer. And I think if we're talking atmospherically, you know, you don't, you're not always going, man, I just want to, I mean, I came into the room today cranky thinking about some work stuff that I have to do. That's not cultivating in the atmosphere, anything that's actually edifying or building up for even you two who are in the room. I think there's an aspect to worship that actually cultivates um, the presence of God. We see in throughout the scriptures that God's presence comes as the people of God cry out or worship or move in that response. So we're talking about warfare, of course, like where his presence comes, the darkness flees, where his presence um, is evoked. Uh, the presence of the enemy is deactivated. It's, it's dethroned from the spaces that it has been. So I think that there's just an aspect to worship that um, cultivates for us just uh, an atmosphere of the presence of God, which is why, you know, you'll talk to people all the time who have had demonic encounters or different kind of circumstances and situations where they will play worship music in the home or they will um, begin in that space of worship first. Because not only does it if cultivate the presence of God, but it also recenters you and postures you around the truth. Because there is another reality to when you're in a f space of worship, whether it be corporate or just individual, where you're actually, by the, the proclamation of your actual mouth, your, your ears are able to hear truth that even if your soul can't comprehend it yet, you're still saying it out loud, you're declaring it out loud before the enemy, and also back to yourself, to your flesh, and there's something that happens as we do that. It's why we corporately gather to hear other voices. I can think about so many seasons of my life that I needed to see, and I do this almost Every Sunday, I just take a second and pull myself out of the gathering 
um, or the gatherings, whichever one. And I just kind of watch and, and something happens as I'm looking at people worship Jesus. Mm-hmm. There's something that happens in me, a faith that's grown, a trust that's built up that I think um, that's essential in, in the space of warfare, right thinking, cultivating this atmosphere of God's presence coming. So I think there's a lot of different elements to it. But I do think the the body thing of, of actually moving my body and even it's like sometimes it's the Paul thing of like disciplining my body to move in a posture of worship, even if my heart isn't there, but to say like, I'm here and you look at the Psalms, you look at how David talks about worship and all of that was like, I'm going to do it with instruments. I'm going to do it with my hands. I'm going to do it with my body. I'm going to do it with my lips. I'm going to do it with, he, he is like evoking all parts of the, the body and basically saying it's in this space that I am consecrating at some level myself to God even if I don't feel the emotion of it or even if I don't feel the experience of it but it's by this means of consecration that I'm believing God's going to come and meet me in that space which again is just like not a territory that the enemy gets to have at all when you're in that space cultivating those things and um there was one other thing I just think about I think anytime I think about worship as warfare I think about it's Jehoshaphat I think in second chronicles 20 that where they basically go out and the, the battle is won for Israel because of the worship that's done, that God used actually worship. And I know it's kind of narrative and metaphoric, but he used worship to actually disorient the enemy. And he did that a million times with Israel. <laughs> like he would just say, go out and, you know, clang some of these pots together and see what happens or march around a wall. When we get to the seventh time, go ahead and shout your brains out and I'll just do stuff. And I think there's something to that that we as God's people can adhere to as well, that sometimes it's important to raise our voice just as the enemy has raised his and, you know, yeah. to do it differently. How many stories do we have of good versus evil in fiction that use the classic trope of here's, you know, the, the underdog hero that is up against seemingly, you know, uh, unsurmountable odds and ev- powerful evil. And there they are. They seem like so small and already defeated. But then here comes... The Calvary, here comes the rest of everyone who's rising up and their voices are getting louder, you know, and then they cut to a shot of the horizon and this great big army of support pouring in. And then the enemy is suddenly cowering and, oh, my God, I had no idea that there were this many of them or that they were this psyched up or that, you know, when something happens that infuses, uh, you know, good with with fervor, now the enemy is kind of shaking in their boots type of thing. And I think that they're as funny as cliched as that sounds, that that is an element of what you're talking about, Bethy, and the, the, the willingness of, I think, disciples of Jesus to come together and, um, and to embody that, uh, the, you know, worship to sing with your, with your body expressively and all that, whether or not you feel as though that's like the most natural disposition of your, your current, state of mind and soul and you know emotions there's kind of all this flack that i hear sometimes about like uh dishonesty and worship like i wasn't even feeling anything i'm not going to do anything if i don't feel it and to me that it's one thing to critique worship phony worship when people are pretending to have like a, a beautiful experience and they're really not but i think that the willingness to like bethany said to simply sing to like even respond with your body, even if you feel like in that moment far from God or not at all emboldened or confident, um, is something that creates that scene of, you know, the of forces of good being riled up against the forces of evil. And there's something contagious that happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, anyone who's ever been to any level of live performance knows that 
the uh, personality of a crowd of an audience is something that is reciprocated by a performer, whether that's music or theater or whatever it is. There's a contagiousness in the air mm-hmm. that affects the in the entire evening, yeah. and that can't happen if you do not consistently and constantly come back together as a group and put yourself in a, a state of willingness, regardless of your emotional disposition in that given moment, to actually sing. So what we're now doing is making an argument to go to church. Which, come on, somebody. Which is That's a whole other podcast. Need, yeah, somebody an argument needs that needs to be ba- made again. But I think, honestly, not to, you know go to a predictable place yeah there in in spiritual warfare there's a dimension of what is often called corporate gathering or what we would just say going to church going to church on sunday um with other people singing songs learning from the bible all that stuff that is crucial in spiritual warfare and that frankly can't be recreated um if you're going to be one of those like i'm my own church i have church with my dog you know kind of thing Remember that the enemy's tactic is to get you alone. So especially in especially when it comes to the demonic, spiritual warfare, all of that, it's isolation is the key. So if you're in a space where you're consistently being isolated, whether it be emotionally or whatever, the 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 discipline against it, the thing that you're going to fight is to just put yourself in community, to throw yourself into a space where there's a communal aspect and you're going to hate every second of it. There's not it's not like you're going to be just like I'm thrilled to be here. I think about Oftentimes in worship, I think about David's language where he doesn't say, I joyfully lift my hands to the Lord. He just says, I lift my hands up. Like I'm just in the company of people. I'm going to bless you. Not We don't hear any of his language being like, because I just feel so led to do that. Or I feel so excited to do that. It's for me. Yeah, he's just, he's you can just see some of these, it feels like, and maybe I'm just inferring a bunch of information, but that he is putting himself in those spaces and saying, but I will bless the Lord at all times, but I will like let his praise be on my lips, but I will. And it's almost like you can hear the, the discipline in David who was in really horrific situations actively. <laughs> Most of the time he's running for his life. So this baby is just, but I will still bless the Lord in the company of the God's people or whatever. And so I think there's something to that when it comes to warfare. It's that idea of our God being triune and communal why do we think we're anything different? To be isolated is to be separated from that reality of our design. So I think it's one of the great tactics and spaces where the enemy gets us the most. Yeah, and you make an excellent point with the whole David piece and especially in some of the lyrics he wrote that if ever there was an argument for a willingness to participate in worship, regardless of your emotional disposition, you could find it in any number of the Psalms that begin sounding endlessly bleak and nihilistic and this sucks and God's not even listening to me anymore and yet I insist I will continue to say these things and um, I I sincerely doubt uh, that David's emotional disposition is pulling a 180 in the middle of his you know the stanza that he's writing I think that it's out of Mm -hmm. commitment out of like an obstinate commitment to faithfulness and to dec- declaration of God's faithfulness that regardless of his emotional disposition, he chooses to yeah. sing. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, an important thing uh, to remember is the enemy operates with deceit. And as we sing as a community together, like we're singing songs uh, that are speaking, declaring true things about God and about our relationship with him. A- and I think that's a super important thing to do together in order to ground us in truth and about who God is and about what he's up to. Even like last night, 
during the gathering, you know, uh, just some stuff that was just heavy on my mind and my heart and just kind of distracting me just in, in the midst of, of worship, just one line um, in one of the songs just drew me into the reality of like, you know what, God, you're in this situation. You actually see it perfectly even more than I do, and I want to just entrust this to you. Um, and, and that's a true thing that I can do. And y- you think of, um, you know, like Psalm 22, where it talks about Yahweh being enthroned on the praises of Israel, or you see like in the like vivid imagery of Revelation where there's something about God's presence, being in God's presence and what he's up to. People respond with worship and there is a spiritual, like a, a, a real a- and spiritual reality to that, that, that does, uh, that does something that makes an impact. Yeah. Yeah. Well said us, yeah, man, we're just answering questions. Well, <laughs> you, Dang, I was, I was just sharing the, just encouraging myself. Oh, that's good. I yeah. would like to encourage you as well. You're doing <laughs> such a fantastic job. Answering good job, these questions. Cam. I've enjoyed all these answers, <laughs> especially <laughs> mine. <laughs> um, okay, I got one more question for us about um, kind of uh, demonic oppression and then a couple of questions about uh, God's will and problem of evil stuff to wrap things up. Yeah, piece of cake. You Which guys still feeling strong? you will be happy to respond. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, get, I'll get way up on that hobby horse and start riding it in circles. <laughs> okay. Go you. <laughs> I like that. Um, is it ever wise for a Jesus follower to back down when confronting spiritual evil, like when confronting a demonic stronghold in someone's life? Yeah. Uh, hey, thanks for asking this question, whoever you were. Super important. Uh, the first thing that, that comes to my mind with this question is we're, we're talking about some somebody else's uh, demonic stronghold. Um, the big thing there, I think, is relational invitation um so uh you know you're not um you're not the one that needs to like kick down somebody's door in order to like fix this person or to you know see this demonic stronghold and um you need to have a relationship with this person in some way um and, and a sensitivity to the spirit and and i think this is where community is really important too um in um, a very appropriate ways and with a, a, a ton of respect for the person's identity that you think has a demonic stronghold. Um, you know, asking people, like trusted people, like, you know, w- what is there to do? And I think doing this church stuff and like sitting with people, um, you know, there's definitely times where you just sit there and there's not really actually anything you can do. You see it, you think you can Id- identify it pretty clearly, but there's something this person it's in the balls in this person's court, this other person's court, not in your court. So by trying to force your way into a situation, you can actually uh, make it uh, worse. Yeah. She's not, Bethany's not. For sure. Yeah. I think there's a couple things that come to mind with this question um, that I think are important just in, in the overall understanding of it. You know, I think when it comes to the demonic, there's a couple things that, that have to be on the table if you're dealing with it with another person. I think pastorally we're dealing with it at a different level because either we've been invited in or we're there just <laughs> it's our job by way of <laughs> just meeting with someone and it happens or whatever. But it, depending on what you believe, and I don't know, you don't have to agree with this, but in my experience with the demonic, there is a hierarchy. And so if we're talking like at a high level, um, they operate in higher, it seems to me that they operate in hierarchy, that there's 
little g gods that exist, you know, in the atmosphere. There's other people. There's other ones that are roaming the earth, doing different things. Of course, there's Satan. There's other. Yeah, and there's a biblical entities. precedent for that idea. Sure, yeah. and so I think that the same reality exists um, when we're entering into the demonic uh, spaces or we're entering into battle, whether it be on behalf of another person or in our own lives. That there are times, simply by the the uh, the hierarchy that exists in our spiritual world and our realms that needs to match what's happening in the in the space of another. So if someone's being demonically oppressed in a really distinct and clear way that the demonic presence has is a strong is a clearly a strong entity. It's whatever it may be. Then you need that needs to be matched by the hierarchy and authority at some level of another. Um, and that would be something like um, a pastor who's ordained. There's a there's a noticeable hierarchy to the enemy of like there's a spiritual authority there's totally. spiritual authority in the in parents they carry over I- their children there's a spiritual authority in marriage that exists in that covenantal partnership there's there's just the reality of those things that exist so that's like a whole other conversation for another day but if we're talking at a higher level and a, a more i don't know if it's academic but at some level it is there's a there's an infrastructure and hierarchy that exists that you need to be mindful of when you're entering into those spaces um, i think there's also the reality of permission that needs to be discussed you know this is a conversation for someone where it's like, are they actually willing? <laughs> is this something that they want, that they've given permission and license for you to go and, and war against? Because if you've not been invited to that space, good luck with that. You need to consider that conversation over. Um, there has to be a uh, permission, an invitation to go to that space with another. A lot of times when we love someone, we want to go to bat super hard for them. But a lot of times it's not our place to do it, and there won't be actual ground gained because there hasn't been an invitation or permission from that person. Um, and that's how the, the spiritual realm works that way in a, in a lot of ways. God doesn't force himself, and I think that's the same reality. That's a mentality for us as we're entering and engaging with the demonic. We cannot force ourselves into those spaces or onto people or on um, uh, to those, I don't know, to the places that they've held, whether it be strongholds or not. And then the, the next thing I'd say, just two more things and I'm done. Um, but that person has to be on board, and that goes in line with the permission thing. The person is the only one who actually who carries the actual authority. If we're talking hierarchy, if we're talking all of that. The only person who has the greatest authority in that situation is the person himself, the person who's being oppressed. They have the greatest authority to say go, to get rid of the stronghold. Again, if there's not a willingness or a permission or even, um, and I don't do with either. If, if the person I'm talking to is like, I don't know that I want this gone. I don't even engage at that level. I'm not even going, I'm not going to go toe-to-toe with the enemy in a space that he's been welcomed and has permission to be. That person, and in the conversation, if that person's like, no, I want this thing to go, then I work together in partnership with the individual to see that stronghold broken or that freedom given, where I'll just say, together, we're going to, I'll do the hard work on the outside. I'll do the battling out here against the demonic and the influence and different things, but it's your job to say, you need to go, and leave now. I don't want you to come back. And um, that's the most important part of battling with someone. So again, if so I'm thinking from a parental perspective, if you're a parent, you're like, you see the stronghold in life of your child or a wife who sees a stronghold in her husband or just a friend who deeply loves another friend who's got stronghold. Be careful how you engage with that spiritually, because if they're not on board, you're really exercising, um, not that you can't pray for them, because that's the other point I want to make, but but that you, if you're going to battle, if you will, <laughs> that's a really impossible battle if they've set up camp and are enjoying the company of the enemy at some level, wh- whether knowingly or not knowingly. And then the final thing is I would say it, this is a space to start with prayer. Before you even engage on the spiritual platform of doing any kind of 
whether it be exorcism or, you know, the lifting of demonic oppression, you should start by praying for them. A lot of times we want to charge into demonic settings because we're like, in me, I have the temptation to do that with my personality and with with what I sense in the spiritual realm and discerning gifts and all of that. I want to just go head first into it and be like, to hell with the devil. I'm going to send him back to Jesus or whatever. But, but. Striper lyric you just did. What? Was a, uh, you gave us a striper lyric just I now? didn't even know. Oh, yeah, it's great. I don't Maybe even know we'll play striper. that as the outro. <laughs> I think <laughs> I've seen a striper shirt <laughs> in Target. That's my extent of it. But I think there's an element of, like, if you're serious about going to bat for someone, you should spend some time praying for them before you move into that space. And in that, remembering you are not God. Because sometimes we get overzealous and get into that space and go, like, yeah, I have the authority. And kind of gets a little bit hazy. You want to be clear that... It's God's spirit in you that's at work. You want to be sure that that person is dealing with that real aware of the presence of God and wanting to be free and all of that. And prayer helps slow you down and actually centers you in the right space and also is the groundwork before you actually go in and do the deeper work. It's kind of the loosening of the soil a lot of times before you're able to actually uproot the thing that's taken place. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, way of putting it because you're rem- – Prayer, especially um, preemptive prayer in the face of the demonic, is a way to infuse what is often justifiable outrage against the demonic with compassion for the individual. If you spend time actually just praying for the welfare of a human being um, in tandem with you know, praying authoritatively against evil, uh, you won't forget the the piece that you know Jesus was moved to compassion, not yeah. not just ticked off. I mean, he was he was indignant with evil and yeah. injustice, but also stirred with a lot of compassion. Yeah, because there's a there's a principle. Sorry, if you were about to say something. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's just that principle of the humanity, the spirit, and the flesh. There's this like reality of seeing the person that's equally as important as it is to see what's ha- taking place demonically, and if you can't keep the sight of both you'll probably get off kilter at some point and and you are in the realm of potentially doing harm like you were talking about cam of actually injuring someone by entering that space as opposed to blessing them yeah and there's something you said bethany about like your wiring wanting to just like charge in there and like take care of it Uh, i i kind of resonate with that and what i've had to learn through making uh, many mistakes of doing that is oftentimes the thing to do is to slow down for a moment and um appropriately um, invite other people to come and help as well. I think even when we have like a prayer team, we, we would love two people there to pray and listen for somebody on behalf uh, uh, of somebody. So I, I think like when it comes to like a demonic stronghold and like demonization, like have don't, don't just like bust in there thinking you're an army of one, essentially like have people there that can help you, that can um, pray, listen, um, and especially if they have more of a uh, like a, a, an experience in this realm, allow them to kind of uh, take charge in this thing. Yeah, it's good. Anything yeah. Else? Wow, great answer. Guys. Got him. Got him. Got him. Check. <laughs> uh, I seriously doubt you saw a striper shirt at Target. Did you really see? I think they they sell like a. Does it have like a, a Z or like a Y or something like a big Y? Is well, a y? I mean, there's a Y in striper. Yeah. yeah. Is it big? Bigger than the rest of the letters? I mean, did it look like a bumblebee? That's the trademark oh, look. It's no. like striped like a bumblebee. Nope. Oh, well. I don't <laughs> know where I saw it. Maybe <laughs> at like Hot Topic or something. That, that seems I'm even always less in likely. That store. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, they got slaves overseas making striper t-shirts. I don't probably. know. Probably. Yeah. Let's probably. be honest. All right. Well, just a handful of questions about um, the problem of evil before we wrap it up. You guys still feeling sharp? 
Yeah. I'm feeling medium. Sharp. Medium? Yeah. You still I'm sound sharp. You're putting on a good yeah. show. Putting on a good <laughs> show for everyone. <laughs> I'm just like worship, <laughs> whether you feel it or not, <laughs> right. you charge in there with the answers. Uh-huh. All right, so this this first one I'm um, deducing is uh, in the context of the problem of evil, which is something we talked about in the series. Uh, you can't bring up spiritual warfare, spiritual evil, and not then have to discuss at length what level of aut- autonomy and effect spiritual evil actually has on the world and how much control or lack thereof God maintains in a world where Humans and spiritual beings have autonomy. So someone asked the question, do you think God ever uses an ends justify the means strategy? And I think what they mean by that, if I can be so bold, is that they're, they're wondering, does God ever commission or allow evil, suffering, injustice so that the greater good can be served? Um, and we dealt with this at length in a, in a teaching in the series. If you want to go listen to, I believe it's called uh, God of Evil. That's um, all about this specific question. But I would begin by saying that it depends on exactly what you mean <laughs> by does God ever use an ends justify the means approach. If what you mean is does God ever specifically ordain evil in uh, creation, so that the greater good can be accomplished via that evil, I would argue personally, um, through my distinct theological lens, no, he does not. Um, I do not think that God is ever in control of orchestrating or ordaining evil in the world. Um, I think that evil always happens in opposition to God, opposition to the will of God. and I think that there's like a, com- a long, complicated theological argument that I would make for that. But for uh, sake of time, I'll just say that much so that I can then say that um, I think that such an, th- such a, a, an assumption of God is a, I- in my personal estimation, with a tremendous amount of humility for, for folks that disagree, is what I would call a low view of God, as if God can only get things done if he's the one who controls everything, or if as if God can only get things done if he makes bad things happen first. So, you know, in the classic uh, uh, Augustine's theology of um, meticulous providence, God controlling everything, the idea is kind of like, you know, a Monet, a painting where if you're really up close to the thing and analyzing it, there seem to be all kinds of blotches, and, you know, an impressionistic Van Gogh where it's kind of unsightly, upon direct close inspection but when you back up and you can see the whole piece it all works in concert it's beautiful it's it's better for having those what seem like blotches in the beginning and i just reject the idea that that's the consistent with the character of god that he needs blotches on his painting to get good stuff done or that it's consistent with the the data in scripture that god uh, does bad things to make good things happen so all that to say, in that sense, no, I would, I would argue, no, God does not use an ends justify the means strategy. If by that you mean, does he use evil to justify the means? But if what you mean by does God use an ends justify the means strategy in the sense that has God created a place where evil can transpire, even though he doesn't like it, even though it's against his will, um, so that we can have genuine agency to make real decisions, same, the same of the spiritual realm, 
because in this sense, the end justifies the means uh, is about uh, authentic, the possibility for authentic relationship, uh, a, a loving dynamic of real trust and risk. Then I would say, yes, God it seems to have known that uh, the possibility for evil and the inevitability of evil would be there if he created us with genuine agency and if he created the spiritual realm with genuine agency and he decided that that in the words of uh, c.s lewis that that was a risk worth taking um that the c.s lewis famously wrote about the the state of the universe as in a war zone and that god thought that um a place where something meaningful could actually take place was worth the current state of war that that we're in so if that's what you mean by that then yes i think that god thought love relationship genuine give and take was worth in that sense the ends justify the means in the same sense that you know anyone who thoughtfully approaches the idea of bearing children in the world has to ask themselves well is it worthwhile to like bring sire children and then uh, go through the inevitable amount of like pain and suffering that comes with children when they get hurt or if they reject you if they reject the designs that you foresee over their life and, and or if they were to die or, if, you know, you have to ask yourself, like, um, certainly there's uh, so much to gain from loving relationship, from continuing and growing a family, all that stuff. But is it worth that risk? And I think that that's the most adequate analogy that we have. God seems to have decided that the inevitable evil and suffering were worth the risk so that there could be genuine love, community, relationship, because God is a communal being and has been since the beginning of creation. Um, now, I would add to that a, a tiny clause to say that it's easy to, r right after I did that teaching on um, on the problem of evil in this series, I was met by an individual who described to me a horrific thing that had happened in his family. Tremendous amount of suffering as a result. Horrible ordeal for everyone involved that he had always ascribed to the will and ordination of God because several quantifiable, wonderful things had happened as a direct result of this evil thing that had happened. Meaning, I, th I think in this case, like um, his own faith was renewed because of the fallout from the thing. And because of that, several people in their family who had been atheists had come to faith, seeing the resilience of and the power of healing in God. And so he had just kind of always assumed like, man, God, God did this and it was horrible and he didn't like it to a certain extent, but he did it so that all these good things could happen as a result. And there's certainly, you know, a theological tradition that would argue that's the case. But what I and, uh, and a, another great well-represented theological tradition would argue is that God doesn't need to do things like that to make those things happen. He will do things like that in the fallout of evil, but that's he didn't have to do it th that way. Like the idea that, you know, those people could have only possibly come to faith if this awful thing could happen undermines God and I think I indirectly overemphasizes the power of uh, the enemy as if to say, like, we need these guys. We need these guys doing bad stuff so that good stuff can come out of it. And uh, what I think is actually happening is a, a radical subversion of the enemy's power in that God hates this awful thing that happened in this person's family. He, d he was not responsible for it, not in control of it whatsoever, doesn't want credit for it at all. And yet he's so incredibly uh, ingenuitive 
and powerful and responsive that he's like, I'll just come right in here in this awful thing. The enemy thinks that he won. Watch what I'll do with this crap that he did himself and brings faith out of it, brings good out of evil because he's subversive that way. He's not, and he's not saying, I think, like, thank God, thank me, this happened. <laughs> um, but rather is lamenting with his family, suffering with his family, and saying, but watch, let's bring good out of evil. Um, but that's not the only way that God can possibly work. In fact, I think he probably finds it regrettable that, that the, those opportunities have to come out of evil anyway. And we certainly, anyone from experiential evidence can argue like, well, I've had any manner of good things happen in my life as direct intervention of God or spirit that weren't on the heels of some horrible thing as well. So that's just a very limited idea of God that he needs bad things or he needs to blotch up his painting to make good things happen. Bethany's staring at me like she's ready with some disagreement. Or are you? Wha- what's going on here? No, I have nothing to add. It was yes, all that. Yeah. That yep. Good job. That was good. I would say one more thing. Here we go. I completely disagree with that. <laughs> 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 joking. No, you nailed it on the head. I, I agree. Uh, when somebody says, you know, I'm thinking about the person asking this question, and it, uh, it immediately makes me think of, like, who God is and his character. And I think the question of the ends justify the means to me, like, conjures up the idea of, like, the corrupt politician who's doing backdoor deals, who, you know, one people group gets kind of the short end of the deal in order for other people to get, like, uh, blessing or thriving, whatever it is. Um, And so it's the question of, like, injustice. Like, uh, is God uh, unjust? And uh, what I look to is actually uh, Jesus and... uh, his execution at the hands of the Roman Empire, um, he was the victim of gross injustice, of torture, of, I mean, some scholars even think there's hints of maybe sexual assault going on with the scourging at the, at the hands of the Romans, um, a horrific, shameful death. And Jesus, like, identifies with those who are the victims of injustice. Um, that, that's who our God is. And I think, like, understanding that can help um, kind of vouch for God's character when it comes to, like, whether he does these kind of shady backroom deals or something. God identifies with those who are going through and experiencing injustice. He's on the side of the those who suffer, yeah. not at the hands of the <laughs> He's not responsible for their suffering. Which brings us to a, a question along those lines. What do you personally do when your trust in God's good character is in crisis? So even if you have the kind of theological paradigm that I'm, you know, espousing and arguing for, um, I would never presume to then s- claim my faith in God, the goodness of God's character, has absolutely never been jeopardized or a shaky whatsoever. I think that anyone who is a disciple of Jesus w- has and will experience a certain amount of doubt in the goodness of God's character, if not outright. Um, you know, disbelief. I think that that's part and parcel of the what we would call the Christian experience, but uh, what we do with um, our, our seasons of, of, of shaky faith, especially in the goodness of God's character. And, that, and I think it's probably important to note that our um, lack of faith in the goodness of God and God's character is often something that happens without us really knowing that it's taken place. I, I can honestly can't count how many times I've taught along these lines or done like a teaching out of the Bible around this and then talk to someone after it who who admits 
I didn't even realize that I thought these things about God because I, that it's just been something that I've taken for granted, something that I've presupposed, something that I've never had challenged. And now I realize all along I've believed that God is the type of God who would kill my mom in order to bring someone to faith, that kind of thing, and, and how that has taken a toll on their, their willingness to trust in God's good character. So, Bethany, what do you do when your faith in God's good character is in crisis? Um, that's a good question. And I think, again, just to reiterate what you said, I think we're all you, all, you encounter it over and over again in your faith journey. So even when I am, like, in a good season, I just fully anticipate that there will be a coming season um, of questioning God because I'm human. I'm, I think about the line, I think it's from Job, where he says, like, or maybe it's Ecclesiastes, maybe you'll know. The, no, Job, you are God in heaven, and here, I'm, here am I on earth, so let my words be few. I think there's like that's the feeling sometimes is it's like in that space of questioning God's character, his goodness, like I think the very best thing you can do sometimes is to adhere to that, to like let your words be few and um and and not panic. Like I think there's a reality to what I tell myself in the good seasons is hey, there will be another season where you will need to remember these things so I go back to God's faithfulness and past seasons and I read journals and crap and go look how he was faithful he will be faithful again so that's like a form of discipleship but when I'm actually in the throes of it I actually am the type of personality that fights it out if I actually believe in this covenantal relationship that I'm in with God and I know that I'm an odd one and that I in my singleness get to really exercise this right now but um but I like I just like fight it out I'll just say like you're driving me crazy you are like being too quiet or you're um I do not understand where you're being good to me. I absolutely feel the following. Like you've forgotten me, that you don't care, that you've been unjust, that it's been unfair. Like I'll just give it to him because I do believe in his ability to love me beyond my what I can fully see and understand. And I just say that. Like I get that I have a limited perspective, but I need to let you know how I'm feeling and now make you responsible for what you're going to do with those feelings. <laughs> so sometimes I just have to, in my disappointment, in my pain, give it to him honestly and then let him let him be the lord over me and say like now what will you do and his responsibility doesn't mean that it's a guaranteed deliverance from whatever i'm feeling or even from the circumstances around me but but it is a guarantee of the relational covenant that he will have to respond to me as a husband as a father as a god and attend to these areas where I'm in pain. And I trust him for that. So as I give him my emotions, as I give him what's going on, I fully trust that there will be something reciprocated that will bring, um, sometimes it's like just enough for me to walk through whatever it is that I'm walking through. So do I rely on things from past seasons? Absolutely. In the moment, though, that still sucks. It doesn't feel like anything real. You just have to do the discipline of reminding yourself that he has been faithful and he will be faithful again and he is good and his nature is that he can't withhold anything good from me that's what the scriptures say there's like a ton of promises about who he has to be to me and so I call him on the carpet on all of those things <laughs> and demand that he be all those things and he is and he does and it's just the working out of that that um that takes a little bit of time but it is the thing that I lean on in, in times where I'm like you have just not been good and that's a regular rhythm in our relationship and I think Learning to be honest with God regularly is just a good discipline to figure yeah. out in your apprenticeship to him because it's not just in the hardest of moments. Like last week, I was just like, you are not being kind. to. I just do not feel your kindness. Now, I know you are being kind because I know that's true of who you are, 
but I cannot see it. So I need eyes for you just to show me how you're being kind to me. Or even last night at church, I was feeling squished by something from my past. I was just feeling honestly suffocated. And I'm a pastor and I had to be on stage and do a bunch of crap. And I was like, I don't want to be disingenuine um, or disingenuous, but I need your help. So I just prayed over and over again for about an hour. God have mercy. Just God have mercy. I just didn't have any other language for anything. And then he came and delivered. During the teaching, he came, did something in my brain, and that was really helpful. (laughs) So I think, you know, it's this active discipline of just being able to willingly bring yourself before the Lord and to have it out. And I I just think we, we fail so often to lean into the covenantal aspect of our relationship. You know, I'm not going anywhere in our relationship. I may act like I am, but I know better than that. I'm not I'm not going to leave. And he isn't either. So I have to just lean into the like, well, no one's going anywhere, so I need to just say the thing I need to say. Yeah. And um and and from that space, we've just had our very best conversations. From that I know and I know that I'm a passionate person and I like to share all my feelings very deeply with other people and with God. And in that, I just feel fully known by him because he gets to have all the aspects of me, not just the I'm not monitoring it to be with him. And if I am, then we're not really in relationship. We're not really doing the the soul kind of connecting that I need from him and with him. So I think that's the that makes sense. But no, yeah, totally. It's the that's the most important piece is the relational dynamic. You know, the we talked about in the series the the strategy of the enemy is to separate. And you had touched on this earlier, Bethany, to separate us from God. And you even see in that first story with the talking snake that the idea is that if you can get someone away from God and then have them talk about God with other people um, rather than with God himself, then then you can do some serious damage. And I think that, you know, the the idea that it's not only permissible, but entirely necessary to bring your doubts and grievances or, or lack of faith to God himself is just an expectation of what it means to have an actual relationship. You you know, you uh, I'm sure we've all known or talked to the people that are in other types of intimate relationship marriages, family members where they um have serious grievances or pain or you know like m- mistrust and they're talking about it with you rather than the person or they're talking about it off to the side and complaining or lamenting and that lament becomes bitterness becomes cynicism becomes a severed relationship broken relationship ultimately destroyed relationship rather than having the kind of open air relationship where you can sit with one another and say this sucks i don't understand why you would do this and have that other person be able to say how they feel back to you and obviously it's different with god because he's not a flawed spouse or or sibling or something like that but I actually remembered this. Uh, I have this vivid memory of um, being uh, somewhere one afternoon, and Beth. It was a coffee shop. I was working. Bethy came in, and uh, and she knew that I was going through a, a rough period. And she sat down and said, "How are things going?" I was like, "Oh, they're they're still pretty bad." And you know, it's it's not. There hasn't been any breakthrough that I can uh, men- to mention. And she said, well, what does God say when you ask him about it? And I was like, nothing. He's not telling me any freaking thing. And she was like, oh, I know. Tell me about it. It's so freaking frustrating because she was in a similar place of, of feeling like she couldn't hear anything. And I, I remember thinking that there was a kind of, as ironic as it seems, a reverence there because it, it felt to me like both of us 
had a, a solidified disposition of faithfulness in this. I'm not saying that like we're above reproach in the Department of Faithfulness, but like Bethany was saying, we're both like neither of us are, are going anywhere. The only reason that we're having this conversation is because of our unwavering um, affection for and dedication to Jesus. The fact that we, she'd ask what's going on and that we would both sit there and say fr- so frustrated. I felt as though that was a conversation we were actually having before God, not at his expense, not away from mm-hmm. him. Never was I like, screw this guy, I'm going to talk about him behind his back, which is something that we often do when we sit around and critique and, and pick apart God. And, but there's like a, a genuineness that you can have even within the family of God to say, my faith feels like it's in crisis. I don't actually believe that God is good because it's a, a, a question or a conversation that's happening within the family of God. You know, you see that in the, the devil's strategy one, to separate Eve from Adam, then to separate the two of them from God, have them talk about God rather than with God. And I think when he, um, the enemy that is, picks us apart and tries to draw us away from the attention of God, rather than just have us, like Bethany's describing, sit down and say, it's very hard for me to, to believe that you are being kind to me right now or that you care at all, um, that God is, is not threatened by those things, or certainly he isn't offended by those things. If he's offended by those things, then he made some seriously strange decisions about how to put together the Bible because it's replete with instances of people who are seriously ticked at God, who challenge and at times openly doubt his character, his goodness. And, you know, it seems like we have a God who was like, you know what, put put that in, put that part in when they said that, their eyes wear out looking for where the heck I am. But yeah, add that to the Bible. Um, if that isn't an invitation to bring those kinds of feelings to God himself, then you know I don't know what is. Yeah, that's great. I, I don't think I have anything to add to that. I think you <laughs> yeah, yeah, covered it right. all. That's right. Exhaustively. We got all right. You guys got just a little bit more in you? Feeling sh- <laughs> still sharp? medium (laughs) (laughs) i'm right i'm riding at a solid medium (laughs) right now um here's i got a theological question for you guys and then more of a pastoral question for you guys to end with okay okay the first one is my my question whoever this anonymous person is my question pertains a little bit more to the problem of evil but i'm wondering about how god actually intervenes in spiritual warfare with the enemy and the kingdom of darkness especially with a a kind of libertarian view of free will. Are there biblical examples and evidence that explain his intervention in more detail? So I I assume what they're asking is if the enemy's spiritual beings have genuine agency to do good or evil, to actually go this way or that way, and God doesn't stop them, then how can he intervene and how does he intervene? Exactly what does his participation look like? Um, which is a really excellent question. Um, if if I may, you may. I think that it does, I, and I'm not accusing this this person of this at all. But often when this question is posed, I think that there there tends to be a little bit of built-in um, presupposition that a lot of us carry because of our background traditions, even certain readings of the Bible that. If God is not in control of everything, he can't possibly be involved in anything. Now, few people would actually word it that way, but that you'd be surprised how often that assumption rears its ugly head, meaning that um, 
oh, so what you're saying is God at some point kind of washed his hands and said, everyone just do whatever the heck they want. I can't mess with it because I love people and I want them to love me back. So free for all. And then, you know, chaos just broke out across the planet. And he's sitting back there going, I, I really wish I could do something, but I can't remember free will. You've got to be able to do whatever you want. And that idea assumes that God is not involved and, and that his involvement is not significant in both the major and minor aspects of day-to-day life in the world. Um, my the- theological paradigm is that God is does not meticulously control everything, but that he is meticulously involved in everything, that, um, that he, prayers have like a genuine uh, say in, in how the cosmos goes this way or that way, that... You know, a, a great example is people ask, like, well, what's the point of praying for someone to come to faith if God is not going to commandeer their will by way of our prayers? And again, I say, like, what what makes you think that God cannot be involved in that process just because he won't commandeer their will? Doesn't God have access to people in that person's life that can say the right things at the right time, that can intervene in a way that's meaningful? Can't he be involved in orchestrating? You know, because the, the, the question often presupposes, man, the enemy has all this power and control and God can't use any of it. And it's interesting because no one assumes that the enemy has meticulous control over everything that happens. And yet we assume that if God can't do everything, he can't do anything. God has as much involvement in creative power, but God has infinite intelligence god has infinite um ingenuity and resourcefulness to intervene in creative ways um without ever having to commandeer anyone's will or or control their agency at all um so i think that the, the answer to the question is that uh at least for me that God can and will intervene in in any manner of ways short of of commandeering someone's will and saying no to someone's agency and freedom. I think that you see that kind of thing all throughout the scriptures. The example that comes to mind immediately is in um, Mark's biography of Jesus, I believe, when a boy who's possessed by an impure spirit, which we actually touched on earlier, and the impure spirit's trying to kill him by making him have seizures, throw him into a fire, I believe, and that they bring the boy to Jesus and say, hey, your disciples couldn't get rid of this demon. Can you do it? And uh, the inference seems to be that the disciples at this point have been driving out demons. They've been, you know, like commissioned to do the same kind of work that Jesus does, at least to a certain degree. And then Jesus dries out the impure spirit. Later on, the disciples are like, hey, what was up with that? We tried, and it didn't work at all. And he says, oh, this one only comes out by prayer and fasting, which is a really strange story. And you're like, what the heck does that mean? But whatever it means, it at least means that there are different types of approaches to spiritual warfare, and some are more effective than others. So that, to me, seems to be the case that if you want evidence of the fact that there are limitations to what we can do, but there are, is power to what we can do, then that there's precedence for that in the scriptures that like the disciples couldn't get this demon out. Jesus could, but it seems like Jesus is telling them they could have gotten it out with a different approach. And I don't think the idea is like, oh, you're looking always for the, the best and most effective approach. And only if you fast is this demon going to come out versus. But the idea is that the enemy is powerful and resourceful and has agency that God allows and that will God will not revoke in our theological uh, estimation, but that God can and will do stuff, that he's involved, that he is um, concerned, that he cares about the 
the minutia of your life and will intervene in the minutia of your life. That doesn't mean that he has to, you know, con- like pull all the strings to make something happen. That, that, um, you know, presupposition is disastrous in my personal opinion that God can only get his way if he pulls all the strings. No, God can get his way and he does. And ultimately he will, you know, have ultimate say over the cosmos. But even right now, in the war zone that in which you and I live, God can and will do all manner of things without needing to revoke anyone's agency or freedom. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that uh, the question is about a, a libertarian uh, view of free will, uh, because for my uh, Reformed friends, I think this question is actually much more difficult. Um, you kind of take it back a step, but it's essentially if God is in control of everything and has ordained everything, how in the world is he not responsible for what the enemy does? And I think for us, if we can say, like, there is freedom for pe- people actually have agency and choice and, and, and can influence outcomes, and, and it's true, it's not a facade, um, then, then I think that helps uh, in, I guess, a theological and a philosophical way. Um, but also, I, I, I think, um, like a story like Daniel 10, is is a great uh, example in the scriptures of kind of the interplay between prayer and uh, demonic influence and uh, God's purposes and how they can interplay. I don't want to like dive all up into it. Um, you can read it for yourself. It's super interesting stuff going on in that interplay with Daniel and his prayer to Yahweh. Yeah, I think I was thinking about that too, especially if this person's asking because I think you obviously really covered just I think the more theological like framework side of that but if you're asking specifically how how the entities of like how the spirit of God or the um, angels or whatever spiritual powers of the the kingdom of light and darkness interact I think there are like Daniel 10 is a great example of that of this God saying like this little g God you know this angel saying coming and saying I was delayed because I was fighting this little g God so so there's a reality to us where we understand the spiritual realm where we get to say like, yeah, there are angelic beings who are actual warriors <laughs> who are doing war in the heavenlies and we get to ask God for those realities. I think we there's other things by way of even deliverance and healing that the spiritual entities are partnering with us in those, I think, realities. And I think about, too, if you just do if you just spend some time in the scriptures looking at how the angels interact with humans. They do a ton of communicating and they're messengers on a lot of levels. They also um, do a lot of defending. They do a lot of warfare. They do um, a lot of protecting. So there's just like, they're, they're vehicles by which God actually uses them to like actually reveal, I don't know, to reveal who he is and reveal what he wants to say and what he wants to do. And I think the spirit of God is one we know over and over again. If we look at how the spirit interacts with us, even it's this revealer of knowledge. It brings wisdom. It brings insight. It brings discernment. It gives us the ability to see and think between light and dark and go, this is the right way. This is not the right way. So I think if you're wondering how it interacts, I think it, it really does it in a really practical, tangible way if we would actually pay attention to what it is as opposed to just, again, bypassing it and just going like, oh, it's just like no big deal. That was whatever. But we actually have the ability, even in the realm of warfare, to have our thoughts mingle with God's thoughts. That alone is warfare on a massive level of like, oh, I can actually engage with the thoughts of God and in that see things differently and behave differently and be ruled by that differently. So 
I don't know if that's helpful or you want to know that, but like there are actual beings that exist, angels that are present in our day-to-day, that are our protectors, that are, you know, and you can read all kinds of weird stories, whether they're true or not. I don't know if all of them are, but of just like how people have seen them or encountered them and how they've helped them. And um, yeah, I mean, hello, there are like real angels talking to people all throughout the scriptures. So it's I don't know. It's true, yeah, which is interesting. We never think about that, but it's true. A, in a certain sense, unnecessary. We, we know that yeah. God can and does in the in the scriptures just speak to people directly and then other times it's like hi i'm yeah. mike yeah <laughs> i mean really like michael shows up and he's like hey i was so busy i had this yeah. thing sorry going i had on a thing back here and then and Prince even the i think Persian about the announcement of, of jesus of like i'm like that's bizar- like that the angels went to the the shepherds in the field and said like hey the king is here <laughs> hello like yeah. i mean i just think or how i had, had to you know I don't know, like Mary encountering an angel. They're just there's a lot of encounters with heavenly yeah. beings. God seems endlessly communal by yeah. his own decision. <laughs> his I, bet own this, I bet this person didn't think we were going to get into angelology here. <laughs> well, but I think <laughs> I mean, but you know, you're asking good. for it's how good. it intersects. Yeah. If you really want to yeah. know, you should study some I of that. I agree. The scriptures have a lot. Yeah, and I think, you know, I would add to it that Jesus' primary understanding of God was as a father, a good mm-hmm. father. And though it's an analogy, so it breaks down, but if you think about the best possible version of an earthly father, as we as a human father, we would say, um, any small child that trusts their very good earthly father for things like protection and intervention to solve problems, they don't assume that that uh, father needs unilateral control over the cosmos to execute his will of good over that child's life, but they, they do assume that they can and should ask for anything and everything, which is probably why Jesus favored that um, metaphor the way that he did. In, in fact, when he said, ask God the way that you would ask a good dad. Um, so I think that regardless of your you know ro- robust theological understanding of the interplay between um, angels and demons or lack thereof, you do get to ask as if God cares and will do everything that he, he can possibly do to mm-hmm. execute his will in, on your behalf, right? Right. Finally, there's one more question. You guys excited for it? I've saved the... No, I'm I just am. kidding. It's an ordinary question. I should have saved the drug question for last. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How does the devil have a stepladder into our soul if the Holy Spirit lives in us? This is a complicated question because this person didn't specify, but, you know, often there's this, I think, funny and ultimately unnecessary uh, debate that goes on about can a person, can a Christian become possessed by an evil spirit? Uh, It's probably more so a thing back in the satanic panic and exorcist-obsessed days of like, oh, my God, can that happen to me? I don't want to throw up on some priest's face and, you know— same. <laughs> yeah, who <laughs> wants that? Uh, but it seems like what they're asking is, like, h- how can the devil or ca- how can the uh, realm of spiritual evil, demons, spiritual entities, have access into, let's say, your thoughts and your flesh to energize your flesh or to influence your thoughts if you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, if you're a disciple of Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you, um, how can the Spirit, uh, how can the Spirit of evil come against the Holy Spirit? 
uh, you know, <laughs> what comes to my mind, uh, and feel free to push back on this because I haven't refined this Kay. at all. But I'm ready. I'm excited to. I think part Wrong. of it. Wrong. Uh, oh, thanks. <laughs> 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 I, I think part of it is just um, not focusing uh, too closely on the how and just that the scriptures, especially the New Testament, does talk about, uh, you know, there, there being the potential for demonic influence in the life of a follower of Jesus. Um, and, and if we get kind of hung up on the how too closely, like, well, how is that, how is that even possible? Um, I think we, it can just distract from the fact that things like what Paul would say uh, about giving a foothold to Satan, um, you know, it kind of can diminish that, the, the seriousness uh, and distract from that. Yeah, it seems like there's just an overwhelming amount of evidence that Jesus himself was tempted by the devil. And I think, you know, it's easy to read that story and think, well, we call it that, but he wasn't really tempted, meaning he didn't ever actually go, I don't know. You know, when we think of temptation for ourselves, we think of like we were tempted to do something, meaning we felt a genuine pull or a, a desire for the potential of whatever this thing has to offer, whether or not we did it. And uh, the scriptures say that Jesus was tempted by the devil, meaning he actually he didn't just stand there stoically and refute the devil. He did do that, that but there's more to it than that. He, he was genuinely tempted to do those things. So if Jesus is not safe from the temptation <laughs> of the devil, I don't know what um, chance we stand against uh, being protected from temptation of the devil. I mean, all throughout the scriptures, even Jesus said the devil is like, you know, he compares him to like a, apex predator he's like a lion that is roaming around wanting to eat people jesus you know one of his core disciples on whom he built the entire premise of the church uh he said that satan had specifically asked to sift him like wheat and then you know and he falls um to the temptation of the devil himself peter in the uh, in denying jesus so uh how i i don't know i don't i mean the the holy spirit is not uh, a safeguard of <laughs> against all trouble against all temptation the holy spirit is uh, like bethany was just saying someone who leads us into wisdom empowers us to hear the voice of god to understand and discern the scriptures with and to be convicted by the scriptures and led away from sin all those things but not a uh you know impenetrable shield of vibranium against the devil because mm -hmm. the devil uh, clearly s continues to enjoy access to our personhood to some capacity. And we could sit here and like uh, squib squibble? Quabble? Squabble. Squabble. <laughs> <laughs> I made a new word. Like you do sometimes, yeah, Bethany. I do. Like your uh, squillion. It's a number. Yeah, it's oh. a number that's comparable to what? Like over a million. Over a million. Anything billion. over a million. Billion. Over a billion. Over a billion. Squillion. Yeah. So we could sit here and mince words over, like, uh, how exactly and, and what can he do and not do? Can he read your thoughts? It seems like, you know, there's a theological argument um, that the devil can't read your mind. There's no clear pressing answer. It seems, it seems like he's clearly not omnipresent. He's spatially placed, so... To what degree does he have spatial access to places? I have no idea. But what is seems what is abundantly clear is that 
the demonic realm has serious influence over humanity, both disciples of Jesus and otherwise? Yeah, I think this is an interesting question, too, because it's not an easy answer, I, th- I think, to some degree. And then at the same time, it is like I think um, the imagery of the stepladder is funny um, because when I think of this question, I think twofold. One, where it's the we're in that tension of what, you know, N.T. Wright says is the now and the not yet. Like, so we're not in the realized reality of the wholeness of the kingdom of God. We are participating in the inbreaking of it. But that means we're also pushing back another reality, another kingdom. So just like you're saying, there's an interaction between the two things we're existing in that space of like the evil one has not been put into his place yet so so there's a license for him to be the god of this air the god of the air whatever the god of this earth so we're just going to come in contact with that plus you're the enemy if you have the spirit of god in you for some reason we just we like to eliminate ourselves from the equation of being a threat to their kingdom but we are so just remember that and then the irony of the stepladder thing i think a little bit um, is to also think how often are we <laughs> we uh, allowing ourselves to be in spaces or around things or presenting ourselves before things where where we actually are having we're being more in influenced by the demonic because of the things we're participating in like so the irony of the stepladder is like he doesn't always have access to the stepladder a lot of times we're lowering the ladder and saying come on in and then we're going what the heck why yeah. can't you protect me, God? So I think if there we're I talking just wanted a, a to drop acid. Yeah, a disciple <laughs> right. Or mushrooms. I, I, there's a discipleship element to this reality too of again what we talked about from the very beginning, coming full circle, is staying away from the things that that give any license to the enemy yeah. and leaning into the space of holiness. And it is our job, a prerogative as a disciple, not just to say to God, Well, why didn't you you know, fold up the ladder at the right time because this baby snuck in here and now it's a mess or whatever. But to say to our, to be an active, to be active keepers of our own ladder and basically say, what are we lowering it down to? What are we giving access to? And see how that's influencing us as well. So I don't mean that as a critique or anything. I mean that in my own life. That's empowering. That's the, yeah, that's, that's the language. If we're using that ladder language, we need to be as, as aware of that, as passionate about that reality as we are as about holding God accountable for whatever's taking place. Yeah, and I love the way you put it because it's not just the responsibility. It's the empowerment that you have um, to cut the devil off and cut the kingdom of the devil off. I think of that you know, line in James about resist the devil and he will flee from yep. you. That you have a, an, an empowering in your spirit-infused ability to resist temptation and how it stops the devil in his tracks. I would like to point out that in my previous uh, monologue, I when I said the word vibranium, Bethany made a face at me. Because I know what that is. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us and find more teachings and resources at vancity.church and you can support Van City financially by visiting vancity.church/give.